Part 2 of Ball of Fat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ball of Fat by Guy Maupassant. Translated by M. Walter Dunn. Part 2. Read by Michael Robinson. Carbondale, Illinois. It is the first step that counts. The Rubicon passed, one lends himself to the occasion squarely. The basket was stripped. It still contained a pâté de foie gras, a pâté of larks, a piece of smoked tongue, some preserved pears, a loaf of hard bread, some wafers, a full cup of pickled gherkins and onions, of which Crudity's ball of fat, like all women, was extremely fond. They could not eat this girl's provisions without speaking to her. And so they chatted, with reserve at first, then, as she carried herself well, with more abandon. The ladies de Breville and Carre Lamadon, who were acquainted with all the ins and outs of good breeding, were gracious with a certain delicacy. The countess especially showed that amiable condescension of very noble ladies who do not fear being spoiled by contact with anyone, and was charming. But the great Madame Lousseau, who had the soul of a plebeian, remained crabbed, saying little, and eating much. The conversation was about the war, naturally. They related the horrible deeds of the Prussians, the brave acts of the French, and all of them, although running away, did homage to those who stayed behind. Then personal stories began to be told, and Ball of Fat related, with sincere emotion, and in the heated words that such girls sometimes use in expressing their natural feelings, how she had left Rouen. I believed at first that I could remain, she said. I had my house full of provisions, and I preferred to feed a few soldiers rather than expatriate myself to go I knew not where. But as soon as I saw them, those Prussians, that was too much for me. They made my blood boil with anger, and I wept for very shame all day long. Oh, if I were only a man! I watched them from my windows, the great porkers with their pointed helmets, and my maid held my hands to keep me from throwing the furniture down upon them. Then one of them came to lodge at my house. I sprang at his throat the first thing. They are no more difficult to strangle than other people and I should have put an end to that one then and there had they not pulled me away by the hair. After that it was necessary to keep out of sight. And finally, when I found an opportunity, I left town, and here I am. They congratulated her. She grew in the estimation of her companions who had not shown themselves so hot-brained, and Cornudet, while listening to her, took on the approving, benevolent smile of an apostle, 
as a priest would if he heard a devotee praise God, for the long-bearded Democrats have a monopoly of patriotism as the men in cassocks have of religion. In his turn he spoke, in a doctrinal tone, with the emphasis of a proclamation such as we see pasted on the walls about town, and finished by a bit of eloquence, whereby he gave that scamp of a batinguette a good lashing. Then Balafat was angry, for she was a Bonapartist. She grew redder than a cherry, and stammering with indignation, said, I would like to have seen you in his place, you other people. Then everything would have been quite right. Oh, yes, it is you who have betrayed this man. One would never have had to leave France if it had been governed by blackguards like you. Cornadette, undisturbed, preserved a disdainful, superior smile, but all felt that the high note had been struck until the Count, not without some difficulty, calmed the exasperated girl and proclaimed with a manner of authority that all sincere opinions should be respected. But the Countess and the manufacturer's wife, who had in their souls an unreasonable hatred for the people that favor a republic, and the same instinctive tenderness that all women have for a decorative, despotic government felt themselves drawn, in spite of themselves, toward this prostitute so full of dignity, whose sentiments so strongly resembled their own. The basket was empty. By ten o'clock they had easily exhausted the contents, and regretted that there was not more. Conversation continued for some time, but a little more coldly since they had finished eating. The night fell, the darkness little by little became profound, and the cold felt more during digestion made Ball of Fat shiver in spite of her plumpness. Then Madame de Breville offered her the little foot-stove in which the fuel had been renewed many times since morning. She accepted it immediately, for her feet were becoming numb with cold. The ladies Carrère Lamadon and Lousseau gave theirs to the two religious sisters. The driver had lighted his lanterns. They shone out with a lively glimmer showing a cloud of foam beyond, the sweat of the horses, and on both sides of the way the snow seemed to roll itself along under the moving reflection of the lights. Inside the carriage one could distinguish nothing, but a sudden movement seemed to be made between Ball of Fat and Cornadette, and Lousseau, whose eye penetrated the shadow, believed that he saw the big-bearded man start back quickly as if he had received a swift, noiseless blow. Then some twinkling points of fire appeared in the distance along the road. It was Totes. They had traveled eleven hours, which, with the two hours given to resting and feeding the horses, made thirteen. They entered the town and stopped before the Hotel of Commerce. The carriage door opened. A well-known sound gave the travelers a start. It was the scabbard of a sword hitting the ground. Immediately a German voice was heard in the darkness. 
Although the diligence was not moving, no one offered to alight, fearing someone might be waiting to murder them as they stepped out. Then the conductor appeared, holding in his hand one of the lanterns which lighted the carriage to its depth, and showed the two rows of frightened faces, whose mouths were open and whose eyes were wide with surprise and fear. Outside beside the driver, in plain sight, stood a German officer, an excessively tall young man, thin and blonde, squeezed into his uniform like a girl in a corset, and wearing on his head a flat, oilcloth cap which made him resemble the porter of an English hotel. His enormous mustache, of long straight hairs, growing gradually thin at each side and terminating in a single blonde thread so fine that one could not perceive where it ended, seemed to weigh heavily on the corners of his mouth, and, drawing down the cheeks, left a decided wrinkle about the lips. In Alsatian French he invited the travelers to come in, saying in a suave tone, "'Will you descend, gentlemen and ladies?' The two good sisters were the first to obey, with the docility of saints accustomed ever to submission. The Count and Countess then appeared, followed by the manufacturer and his wife. Then Lousseau, pushing ahead of him his larger half. The last named, as he set foot on the earth, said to the officer, "'Good evening, sir,' more as a measure of prudence than politeness. The officer, insolent as all powerful people usually are, looked at him without a word. Ball of Fat and Cornudet, although nearest the door, were the last to descend, grave and haughty before the enemy. The fat girl tried to control herself and be calm. The Democrat waved a tragic hand, and his long beard seemed to tremble a little and grow redder. They wished to preserve their dignity, comprehending that in such meetings as these they represented in some degree their great country, and somewhat disgusted with the docility of her companions, the fat girl tried to show more pride than her neighbors, the honest women, and as she felt that someone should set an example, she continued her attitude of resistance assumed at the beginning of the journey. They entered the vast kitchen of the inn, and the Germans, having demanded their traveling papers signed by the general-in-chief, in which the name, the description, and profession of each traveler was mentioned, and having examined them all critically, comparing the people and their signatures, said, It is quite right, and went out. Then they breathed. They were still hungry, and supper was ordered. A half-hour was necessary to prepare it, and while two servants were attending to this, they went to their rooms. They found them along a corridor which terminated in a large glazed door. Finally they sat down at table, when the proprietor of the inn himself appeared. He was a former horse merchant, a large asthmatic man, with a constant wheezing and rattling in his throat. His father had left him with the name of Fallen V. He asked, 
Is Miss Elizabeth Rousset here? Ball of Fat started as she answered, It is I. The Prussian officer wishes to speak with you immediately. With me? Yes, that is, if you are Miss Elizabeth Rousset. She was disturbed, and reflecting for an instant, declared flatly, That is my name, but I shall not go. A stir was felt around her. Each discussed and tried to think of the cause of this order. The Count approached her, saying, You are wrong, madame, for your refusal may lead to considerable difficulty, not only for yourself, but for all your companions. It is never worth while to resist those in power. This request cannot assuredly bring any danger. It is, without doubt, about some forgotten formality. Everybody agreed with him, asking, begging, beseeching her to go, and at last they convinced her that it was best. They all feared the complications that might result from disobedience. She finally said, It is for you that I do this, you understand. The countess took her by the hand, saying, and we are grateful to you for it. She went out. They waited before sitting down at table. Each one regretted not having been sent for in the place of this violent, irascible girl, and mentally prepared some platitudes in case they should be called in their turn. But at the end of ten minutes she reappeared, out of breath, red to suffocation, and exasperated, she stammered, Oh, the rascal! The rascal! All gathered around to learn something, but she said nothing. And when the Count insisted, she responded, with great dignity, No, it does not concern you. I can say nothing. Then they all seated themselves around a high soup tureen whence came the odor of cabbage. In spite of alarm, the supper was gay, the cider was good, the beverage Lousseau and the good sisters took as a means of economy. The others called for wine. Cornudet demanded beer. He had a special fashion of uncorking the bottle, making froth on the liquid, carefully filling the glass and then holding it before the light to better appreciate the color. When he drank, his great beard, which still kept some of the foam of his beloved beverage, seemed to tremble with tenderness. His eyes were squinted, in order not to lose sight of his tipple, and he had the unique air of fulfilling the function for which he was born. One would say that there was in his mind a meeting, like that of affinities, between the two great passions that occupied his life, pale ale and revolutions, and assuredly he could not taste the one without thinking of the other. Mr. and Mrs. Follenvie dined at the end of the table. The man, rattling like a cracked locomotive, had too much trouble in breathing to talk while eating, but his wife was never silent. 
She told all her impressions at the arrival of the Prussians, what they did, what they said, reviling them because they cost her some money and because she had two sons in the army. She addressed herself especially to the Countess, flattered by being able to talk with a lady of quality. When she lowered her voice to say some delicate thing, her husband would interrupt from time to time with, you had better keep silent, Madame Follenvie. But she paid no attention, continuing in this fashion. Yes, Madame, those people there not only eat our potatoes and pork, but our pork and potatoes, and it must not be believed that they are at all proper. Oh, no, such filthy things they do, saving the respect I owe to you, and if you could see them exercise for hours in the day they are all there in the field marching ahead then marching back turning here and turning there they might be cultivating the land or at least working on the roads of their own country but no madame these military men are profitable to no one poor people have to feed them or perhaps be murdered i am only an old woman without education it is true but when i see some endangering their constitutions by raging from morning to night i say when there are so many people found to be useless how unnecessary it is for others to take so much trouble to be nuisances truly is it not an abomination to kill people whether they be prussian or english or polish or french if one man revenges himself upon another who has done him some injury, it is wicked and he is punished. But when they exterminate our boys as if they were game, with guns they give decorations indeed to the one who destroys the most. Now, you see, I can never understand that. Never. Cornudet raised his voice. War is a barbarity when one attacks a peaceable neighbor, but a sacred duty when one defends his country. The old woman lowered her head. Yes, when one defends himself, it is another thing. But why not make it a duty to kill all the kings who make these wars for their pleasure? Cornudet's eyes flashed. Bravo, my countrywoman, said he. Mr. Carrere Lamadon reflected profoundly. Although he was prejudiced as a captain of industry... The good sense of this peasant woman made him think of the opulence that would be brought into the country, were the idle and consequently mischievous hands, and the troops which were now maintained in unproductiveness, employed in some great industrial work that it would require centuries to achieve. Lousseau, leaving his place, went to speak with the innkeeper in a low tone of voice. The great man laughed, shook, and squeaked. His corpulence quivered with joy at the jokes of his neighbor, and he bought of him six cases of wine for spring after the Prussians had gone. As soon as supper was finished, as they were worn out with fatigue, they retired. However, Lousseau, who had observed things after getting his wife to bed, glued his eye and then his ear to a hole in the wall to try and discover what are known as the Mysteries of the Corridor. 
At the end of about an hour he heard a groping, and looking quickly he perceived Ball of Fat, who appeared still more plump in a blue cashmere negligee trimmed with white lace. She had a candle in her hand and was directing her steps toward the great door at the end of the corridor. But a door at the side opened, and when she returned at the end of some minutes, Cornadet, in his suspenders, followed her. They spoke low, then they stopped. Ball of Fat seemed to be defending the entrance to her room with energy. Lousseau, unfortunately, could not hear all their words, but finally, as they raised their voices, he was able to catch a few. Cornadet insisted with vivacity. He said, Come now, you are a silly woman. What harm can be done? She had an indignant air in responding, No, my dear, there are moments when such things are out of place. Here it would be a shame. He doubtless did not comprehend, and asked why. Then she cried out, raising her voice still more, Why? You do not see why? When there are Prussians in the house, in the very next room, perhaps? He was silent. This patriotic shame of the harlot, who would not suffer his caress so near the enemy, must have awakened the latent dignity in his heart. For, after simply kissing her, he went back to his own door with a bound. Lousseau, much excited, left the aperture, cut a caper in his room, put on his pajamas, turned back the clothes that covered the bony carcass of his companion, whom he awakened with a kiss, murmuring, Do you love me, dearie? Then all the house was still, and immediately there arose somewhere from an uncertain quarter, which might be the cellar, but was quite as likely to be the garret, a powerful snoring, monotonous and regular, a heavy, prolonged sound, like a great kettle under pressure. Mr. Fallenby was asleep. As they had decided that they would set out at eight o'clock the next morning, they all collected in the kitchen. But the carriage, the roof of which was covered with snow, stood undisturbed in the courtyard, without horses and without a conductor. They sought him in vain in the stables, in the hay, and in the coach-house. Then they resolved to scour the town and started out. They found themselves in a square, with a church at one end and some low houses on either side, where they perceived some Prussian soldiers. The first one they saw was paring potatoes. The second, further off, was cleaning the hairdresser's shop. Another, bearded to the eyes, was tending a troublesome brat, cradling it and trying to appease it, and the great peasant women, whose husbands were away in the army, indicated by signs to their obedient conquerors the work they wished to have done, cutting wood, cooking the soup, grinding the coffee, or what not. One of them even washed the linen of his hostess, an impotent old grandmother. The Count, astonished, asked questions of the beetle who came out of the rectory. The old man responded, 
Oh, those men are not wicked. They are not the Prussians we hear about. They're from far off. I know not where. And they have left wives and children in their country. It is not amusing to them this war, I can tell you. I am sure they also weep for their homes, and that it makes as much sorrow among them as it does among us. Here, now, there is not so much unhappiness for the moment, because the soldiers do no harm, and they work as if they were in their own homes. You see, sir, among poor people, it is necessary that they aid one another. These are the great traits which war develops. Cornudet, indignant at the cordial relations between the conquerors and the conquered, preferred to shut himself up in the inn. Lousseau had a joke for the occasion. They will repeople the land. Mr. Carre Lamadon had a serious word. They tried to make amends. But they did not find the driver. Finally they discovered him in a café of the village, sitting at a table fraternally with the officer of ordnance. The Count called out to him, Were you not ordered to be ready at eight o'clock? Well, yes, but another order has been given me since. By whom? Faith, the Prussian commander. What was it? Not to harness at all. Why? I know nothing about it. Go and ask him. They tell me not to harness, and I don't harness. That's all. Did he give you the order himself? No, sir, the innkeeper gave the order for him. When was that? Last evening, as I was going to bed. The three men returned, much disturbed. They asked for Mr. Follenvy, but the servant answered that that gentleman, because of his asthma, never rose before ten o'clock and he had given strict orders not to be wakened before that, except in case of fire. They wished to see the officer, but that was absolutely impossible, since, while he lodged at the inn, Mr. Follenvy alone was authorized to speak to him upon civil affairs. So they waited. The women went up to their rooms again and occupied themselves with futile tasks. Cornudet installed himself near the great chimney in the kitchen, where there was a good fire burning. He ordered one of the little tables to be brought from the café, then a can of beer. He then drew out his pipe, which plays among Democrats a part almost equal to his own, because in serving Cornudet, it was serving its country. It was a superb pipe, an admirably colored merchium, as black as the teeth of its master, but perfumed, curved, glistening, easy to the hand, completing his physiognomy. And he remained motionless, his eyes as much fixed upon the flame of the fire as upon his favorite tipple and its frothy crown. And each time that he drank, he passed his long, thin fingers through his scanty, gray hair with an air of satisfaction after which he sucked in his moustache fringed with foam. Lousseau, under the pretext of stretching his legs, went to place some wine among the retailers of the country. The Count and the manufacturer began to talk politics. They could foresee the future of France. 
one of them believed in an orleans the other in some unknown savior for the country a hero who would reveal himself when all were in despair a gusselin or a joan of arc perhaps or would it be another napoleon first <sighs> if the prince imperial were not so young cornadette listened to them and smiled like one who holds the word of destiny his pipe perfumed the kitchen. As ten o'clock struck, Mr. Follenvy appeared. They asked him hurried questions, but he could only repeat two or three times, without variation, these words. The officer said to me, Mr. Follenvy, you see to it that the carriage is not harnessed for those travelers tomorrow. I do not wish them to leave without my order. That is sufficient. Then they wished to see the officer. The Count sent him his card, on which Mr. Carre Lamadon wrote his name and all his titles. The Prussian sent back word that he would meet the two gentlemen after he had breakfasted, that is to say, about one o'clock. The ladies reappeared and ate a little something despite their disquiet. Ball of Fat seemed ill and prodigiously troubled. They were finishing their coffee when the word came that the officer was ready to meet the gentlemen. Lousseau joined them, but when they tried to enlist Cornadette to give more solemnity to their proceedings, he declared proudly that he would have nothing to do with the Germans, and he betook himself to his chimney corner and ordered another liter of beer. The three men mounted the staircase and were introduced to the best room of the inn, where the officer received them stretched out in an armchair, his feet on the mantelpiece, smoking a long porcelain pipe, and enveloped in a flamboyant dressing-gown, appropriated, without doubt, from some dwelling belonging to a common citizen of bad taste. He did not rise nor greet them. In any way not even looking at them. It was a magnificent display of natural blackguardism transformed into the military victor. At the expiration of some moments, he asked, What is it you wish? The Count became spokesman. We desire to go on our way, sir. No. May I ask the cause of this refusal? because I do not wish it. But I would respectfully observe to you, sir, that your general-in-chief gave us permission to go to Dieppe, and I know of nothing we have done to merit your severity. I do not wish it. That is all. You can go. All three, having bowed, retired. The afternoon was lamentable. They could not understand this caprice of the German, and the most singular ideas would come into their heads to trouble them. Everyone stayed in the kitchen and discussed the situation endlessly, imagining all sorts of unlikely things. Perhaps they would be retained as hostages, but to what end? Or taken prisoners, or rather a considerable ransom might be demanded. At this thought a panic prevailed. The richest were the most frightened. 
already seeing themselves constrained to pay for their lives with sacks of gold poured into the hands of this insolent soldier. They racked their brains to think of some acceptable falsehoods to conceal their riches and make them pass themselves off for poor people. Very poor people. Lousseau took off the chain to his watch and hid it away in his pocket. The falling night increased their apprehensions. The lamp was lighted, and as there was still two hours before dinner, Madame Lousseau proposed a game of thirty-one. It would be a diversion. They accepted. Cornudet himself, having smoked out his pipe, took part for politeness. The Count shuffled the cards, dealt, and Ball of Fat had thirty-one at the outset, and immediately the interest was great enough to appease the fear that haunted their minds. Then Cornudet perceived that the house of Lousseau was given to tricks. As they were going to the dinner-table, Mr. Follenby again appeared, and in wheezing, rattling voice announced, the prussian officer orders me to ask miss elizabeth rousseau if she has yet changed her mind ball of fat remained standing and was pale then suddenly becoming crimson such a stifling anger took possession of her that she could not speak but finally she flashed out you may say to the dirty beast, that idiot, that carrion of a Prussian, that I shall never change it. You understand, never, never, never! The great innkeeper went out. Then Ball of Fat was immediately surrounded, questioned, and solicited by all to disclose the mystery of his visit. She resisted at first, but soon becoming exasperated, she said, What does he want? You really want to know what he wants? He wants to sleep with me. Everybody was choked for words, and indignation was rife. Cornudet broke his glass, so violently did he bring his fist down upon the table. There was a clamor of censure against this ignoble soldier, a blast of anger, a union of all for resistance as if a demand had been made on each one of the party for the sacrifice exacted of her. The Count declared, with disgust, that those people conducted themselves after the fashion of the ancient barbarians. The women especially showed to Ball of Fat a most energetic and tender commiseration. The good sisters, who only showed themselves at mealtime, lowered their heads and said nothing. They all dined, nevertheless, when the first furor had abated. But there was little conversation. They were thinking. The ladies retired early, and the men, all smoking, organized a game at cards to which Mr. Follenby was invited, as they intended to put a few casual questions to him on the subject of conquering the resistance of this officer. But he thought of nothing but the cards, and, without listening or answering, would keep repeating, To the game, sirs, to the game! His attention was so taken that he even forgot to expectorate, which must have put him some points to the good with the organ in his breast. 
His whistling lungs ran the whole asthmatic scale from deep, profound tones to the sharp rustiness of a young cock essaying to crow. He even refused to retire when his wife, who had fallen asleep previously, came to look for him. She went away alone, for she was an early bird, always up with the sun, while her husband was a night owl, always ready to pass the night with his friends. He cried out to her, Leave my cream chicken before the fire, and then went on with his game. When they saw that they could get nothing from him, they declared that it was time to stop, and each sought his bed. They all rose rather early the next day, with an undefined hope of getting away, which desire, the terror of passing another day in that horrible inn, greatly increased. Alas, the horses remained in the stable and the driver was invisible. For want of better employment, they went out and walked around the carriage. The breakfast was very doleful, and it became apparent that a coldness had arisen toward Ball of Fat, and that the night, which brings counsel, had slightly modified their judgments. They almost wished now that the Prussian had secretly found this girl in order to give her companions a pleasant surprise in the morning. What could be more simple? Besides, who would know anything about it? She could save appearances by telling the officer that she took pity on their distress. To her it would make so little difference. No one had avowed these thoughts. Yet, in the afternoon, as they were almost perishing from ennui, the Count proposed that they take a walk around the village. Each wrapped up warmly, and the little party set out, with the exception of Cornadette, who preferred to remain near the fire, and the good sisters, who passed their time in the church or at the curate's. The cold, growing more intense every day, cruelly pinched their noses and ears, their feet became so numb that each step was torture, and when they came to a field it seemed to them frightfully sad, under this limitless white, so that everybody returned immediately, with hearts hard-pressed and souls congealed. The four women walked ahead, the three gentlemen followed just behind. Lousseau, who understood the situation, asked suddenly if they thought that girl there was going to keep them long in such a place as this. The Count, always courteous, said that they could not exact from a woman a sacrifice so hard unless it should come of her own will. Mr. Carre Lamadon remarked that if the French made their return through dip, as they were likely to, a battle would surely take place at Totes. This reflection made the two others anxious. "'If we could only get away on foot,' said Lousseau. The Count shrugged his shoulders. "'How can we think of it in this snow, and with our wives?' he said. "'And then we should be pursued and caught in ten minutes and led back prisoners at the mercy of these soldiers.' It was true, and they were silent. The ladies talked of their clothes, but a certain constraint seemed to disunite them. Suddenly, at the end of the street, the officer appeared. 
His tall, wasp-like figure in uniform was outlined upon the horizon formed by the snow, and he was marching with knees apart, a gait particularly military, which is affected that they may not spot their carefully blackened boots. He bowed in passing near the ladies, and looked disdainfully at the men, who preserved their dignity by not seeing him, except Lousseau, who made a motion toward raising his hat. Ball of fat reddened to the ears. And the three married women resented the great humiliation of being thus met by this soldier in the company of this girl whom he had treated so cavalierly. But they spoke of him, of his figure and his face. Madame Carré Lamadon, who had known many officers and considered herself a connoisseur of them, found this one not at all bad. She regretted even that he was not French, because he would make such a pretty hussar, one all the women would rave over. Again in the house, no one knew what to do. Some sharp words, even, were said about things very insignificant. The dinner was silent, and almost immediately after it, each one went to his room to kill time in sleep. They descended the next morning with weary faces and exasperated hearts. The women scarcely spoke to Ball of Fat. A bell began to ring. It was for a baptism. The fat girl had a child being brought up among the peasants of Yvetot. She had not seen it for a year or thought of it, but now the idea of a child being baptized threw into her heart a sudden and violent tenderness for her own, and she strongly wished to be present at the ceremony. As soon as she was gone, everybody looked at each other, then pulled their chairs together, for they thought that finally something should be decided upon. Lousseau had an inspiration. It was to hold Ball of Fat alone and let the others go. Mr. Follenby was charged with the commission, but he returned almost immediately, for the German, who understood human nature, had put him out. He pretended that he would retain everybody so long as his desire was not satisfied. Then the commonplace nature of Mrs. Lousseau burst out with, "'Well, we are not going to stay here to die of old age, since it is the trade of this creature to accommodate herself to all kinds. I fail to see how she has the right to refuse one more than another. I can tell you she has received all she could find in Rouen, even the coachman. Yes, madame, the prefect's coachman.' I know him very well, for he bought his wine at our house. And to think that today we should be drawn into this embarrassment by this affected woman, this minx! For my part, I find that this officer conducts himself very well. He has perhaps suffered privations for a long time, and doubtless he would have preferred us three. But no, he is contented with common property. He respects married women. And we must remember, too, that he is master. He is only to say, I wish, and he could take us by force with his soldiers. The two women had a cold shiver. 
Pretty Mrs. Carrie Lamadon's eyes grew brilliant, and she became a little pale, as if she saw herself already taken by force by the officer. The men met and discussed the situation. Lousseau, furious, was for delivering the wretch bound hand and foot to the enemy. But the Count, descended through three generations of ambassadors, and endowed with the temperament of a diplomatist, was the advocate of ingenuity. It is best to decide upon something, said he. Then they conspired. End of Part 2